Welcome to the 359th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I discuss the origins of COVID-19 with Frederick Keck, author of Avian Reservoirs, Virus Hunters and Bird Watchers in Chinese, Chinese Sentinel Posts. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls broadcast at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 18th, 2021, there are 4,898,487 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. France is reporting at this time 118,173 deaths from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Finally, a virus got me. Scientist who fought Ebola and HIV reflects on facing death from COVID-19. Appeared May 8, 2020 in Science and was written by Dirk Drollens, translated by Martin Ensrink. Virologist Peter Pio director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, fell ill with COVID-19 in mid-March 2020. Pio, who grew up in Belgium, was one of the discoverers of the Ebola virus in 1976 and spent his career fighting infectious diseases. He headed the joint United Nations program on HIV AIDS between 1995 and 2008 and is currently a coronavirus advisor to European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. But his personal confrontation with the new coronavirus was a life-changing experience, Pio says. The interview took place May 2nd, 2020, and his answers were edited from Dutch into English. You can check out the entire interview on science, and I'll also post a link to the conversation. On March 19th, I suddenly had a high fever, he said, and a stabbing headache. My skill, my skull and hair felt very painful, which was bizarre. I didn't have a cough at the time, but still my first reflex was, I have it. I kept working. I'm a workaholic, but from home. We put a lot of effort into teleworking at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine last year so that we didn't have to travel as much. That investment made in the context of the fight against global warming is now very useful, of course. I tested positive for COVID-19 as I suspected. I put myself in isolation in the guest room at home, but the fever didn't go away. I had never been seriously ill and have not taken a day of sick leave the past 10 years. I live a pretty healthy life and walk regularly. The only risk factor for corona is my age. I'm 71. I'm an optimist, so I thought it would pass, but on the 1st of April, a doctor friend advised me to get a thorough examination because the fever 
and especially the exhaustion were getting worse and worse. It turned out I had severe oxygen deficiency, although I still wasn't short of breath. Lung images showed I had severe pneumonia, typical of COVID-19, as well as bacterial pneumonia. I constantly felt exhausted. While normally I'm always buzzing with energy, it wasn't just fatigue, but complete exhaustion. I'll never forget that feeling. I had to be hospitalized, although I tested negative for the virus in the meantime. This is also typical for COVID-19. The virus disappears, but its consequences linger for weeks. I was concerned I would be put on a ventilator immediately because I had seen publications showing it increases your chance of dying. I was pretty scared, but fortunately, they just gave me an oxygen mask first, and that turned out to work. So I ended up in an isolation room in the antechamber of the intensive care department. You're tired, so you're resigned to your fate. You completely surrender to the nursing staff. You live in a routine from syringe to infusion, and you hope you make it. I'm usually quite proactive in the way I operate, but here I was 100% patient. I shared a room with a homeless person, a Colombian cleaner, and a man from Bangladesh, all three diabetics, incidentally, which is consistent with the known picture of the disease. Days and nights were lonely because no one had the energy to talk. I could only whisper for weeks. Even now, my voice loses power in the evening, but I always had that question going around in my head. How will I be when I get out of this? After fighting viruses all over the world for more than 40 years, I have become an expert in infections. I'm glad I had corona and not Ebola, although I read a scientific study yesterday that concluded you have a 30% chance of dying if you end up in a British hospital with COVID-19. Again, this is reported from springtime of 2020. That's about the same overall mortality rate as for Ebola in 2014 in West Africa. That makes you lose your scientific level-headedness at times, and you surrender to emotional reflections. They got me, I sometimes thought. I've devoted my life to fighting viruses, and finally, they get their revenge. For a week, I balanced between heaven and earth on the edge of what could have been the end. I've always had great respect for viruses, and that has not diminished. I've devoted much of my life to the fight against the AIDS virus. It's such a clever thing. It evades everything we do to block it. Now that I have felt the compelling presence of a virus in my body itself, I look at viruses differently. I realize this one will change my life. Despite the confrontational experiences I've had with viruses before, I feel more vulnerable. An interview in Science Magazine from the spring of 2020 with Peter Pio, and you can check out the entire interview at Science, and I'll also post that link. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest, Frederick Keck. He's a senior researcher at the Laboratory of Social Anthropology, CNRS, College de France, E-H-E-S-S. After working on the history of social anthropology and contemporary biopolitical questions raised by avian influenza, he was the head of the research department of the Musée de Quai Branly between 2014 and 2018. He published Avian Reservoirs, Virus Hunters and Birdwatchers in Chinese Sentinel Post, which appeared with Duke University Press in 2020. And he's also co-author with Kelly A. Kelly and C. Lynn Terrace of Anthropology of Epidemics, which appeared with Rutledge in 2019. Frederick Keck, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Hi, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there. So I'm living in a village um, in the forest of Fontainebleau, uh, which is in the south of Paris. And the situation is Paris uh, has got better. Uh, we have a QR code that allows us to enter public buildings and that uh, will probably be maintained by the government until next spring. What's the vaccination situation looking like there? What's the percentage-wise? Do you have a sense of it? Um, I guess the percentage of the population vaccinated uh, with two doses is um, uh, 80%. Uh, but um, there is still an attempt to reach the, the, the remaining 20% as um, um, and the anti-vax campaign is still pretty strong in social networks. And every Saturday uh, in France, French, France major cities, there are demonstrations against vaccination and QR code. So the, this QR card, how does it work? This is triggered by having registered your vaccination status and then it gives you access to public facilities that's right so you register your vaccination status and also if you have done pcr tests and everything is centralized by an application run by the government which is called um everyone against covid19 and you open you open the application when you have to enter a restaurant or a, a theater that's so interesting. We have a version of that here in South Korea, but it runs through one of the social media platforms, the Kakao Talk platform, and it brings up a QR code and you scan it when you come into public spaces, but more often in private um, spaces. And it's a way that they uh, do the contact tracing if they need to, so they can locate mm -hmm. where you were at various times. I'm assuming the yeah. French system works in a similar way. Yeah, the interesting thing with this QR code is that um... Uh, people who work in restaurants or theaters have to check themselves. So they are transforming some kinds of operators of the state in checking the vaccination status. And there's also a, a whole uh, um, business of uh, finding QR codes uh, on the internet because there's finally very little um, checking of the correspondence between your, the QR code you display and your identity. So this is also very interesting if you think of uh, all the debate about police checking the identities of, of um, minorities. And, and apparently they didn't want to check so much the identities of, of, of people who showed up their QR code. So, so it's quite easy to, 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 to bypass um, the, the checking. I see. I, I wonder, would you be willing to share a personal memory of this? time period for you, what it's been like to deal with COVID? Is there a particular memory that sticks with you? Well, the, the, the first lockdown uh, I uh, experienced in my in my uh, house uh, in, in the countryside, the, 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 the spring was very nice and I was um, um, uh, very busy with answering um, um, the, the, the media and, and, and the press uh, because my, my, my book was about to come out and it was delayed by the pandemic. And I, I also, it was also the moment when I, I got the disease and um, I, I was sick for only one day. My wife was sick for two weeks. Um, so so it, it was a moment when I thought it would be very short and I, I didn't expect that it would um, be so long with so many different waves and different mutations. Uh, so so it was quite a nice memory and, and uh, the, the following autumn and winter were, were darker.
So you you had it, you, were you tested and confirmed or you, you were sick with the symptoms and you pretty much surmised? I was sick with the symptoms and then I, I, in March and I, I, I got um, a, a seropositive test uh, in, in June. So, so, and I was in China in December 2019. So I, I, I hope I was not one of the people carrying the, the virus to Europe. Well, I hope you're, I'm glad you're okay. And I'm glad it was the, uh, maybe a less strenuous uh, case of it. Must have been quite something to have that experience an uncanny experience i guess for a researcher like yourself to also have the virus yeah exactly um i went to several places where there's intense contact with um, poultry carrying potentially a dangerous influenza virus and i never got the, the influenza um, uh, highly pathogenic virus but but this one I, I never got in touch with a with a bat or a wet market in China, uh, but I was infected probably just by contact when it was circulating very intensely in March in Paris. Hmm. Well, I have many things I want to ask you about. I want to talk about your book, but actually I want to start sort of dive right into this question of the debates around the origin of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. And so when you're asked that question, as I'm sure you've been asked many times, how do you even approach approach it you know when you begin to take stock of how you would answer the question the origin of the virus what where do you begin that story so i i, I got the question very quickly in um, march uh, because um, the parallel between the origin of the virus in wuhan and the fact that there was a laboratory uh, of virology that was built um, with the support of, of french authorities uh, raised a lot of concern in in the French media, and uh, at, at the beginning, I was very um, adamant to say that it could not come from a lab because I wanted the story of zoonotic uh, origin to be heard and its ecological lessons for um, um, more respect toward uh, wildlife uh, and, uh, and 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 being concerned about. Uh, zoonotic pathogens as, as showing the transformations of relations between humans and, and animals. But but then I got some information by French virologists who, who were very strongly supporting the hypothesis of the lab leak uh, around September based on um, genetic uh, uh, indication or signatures. And and, and now I'm troubled. I, I, I receive information on both sides. So as, as an anthropologist, I cannot, of course, Decide because it's it's a very technical debate, um, uh, considering the, the genetic components of of the um, of the virus and 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 also what what was available um, in terms of virus trends in the different virology lab of of Wuhan. But uh, to place it in my uh, long term reflection on uh, biosecurity and pandemic preparedness. Um, whether the virus came to humans by a biosecurity leak or failure in a, a lab or by a biosecurity failure in a market doesn't change a lot because at the end the the virus was circulating among bats before it jumped to humans um, and and so we need to understand both the 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 origins of viruses in wildlife and, and the way biosecurity protects us or not towards these viruses. 
So that's a, I think that's an important way to kind of take both of those viewpoints and step out one level and say it still raises some fundamentally the same questions. There's a piece up in the, in the New Yorker um, magazine. You've probably seen it. It just came up last week, but it, it's a very interesting. Um, uh, basically, that it's trying to take stock of the evolving uh, lab leak theory discussions. And it says um, in the piece, I'm just going to quote, quote one sentence from it because it's, it's very nicely said, but it says the lab leakers tend to be more interested in biosecurity, transparency, and human hubris. But on the natural origin side, most people have done the kind of field and lab work that the Wuhan Institute of Virology pursued, and they're regularly bowled over by nature's endless diversity. Hmm. I, I don't want to force you to choose a side, but I mean, where do you place yourself in, in hmm. among those as an anthropologist? Hmm. So the lab leak hypotheses or the um, market hypotheses are, are two ways to attribute responsibility uh, for what is actually a, a worldwide uh, disaster. Um, but the responsibility of people who have to, to check biosecurity rules in, in, in laboratories is easier to pinpoint because it's, it's actually humans carrying uh, and, and handling uh, dangerous pathogens. Whereas the responsibility of those who handle markets or uh, who also uh, go to caves where they sample uh, viruses is, is much more difficult to trace because you don't know at which point uh, a, a, a mistake has been made. So at the end, I think it's 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 important to raise questions of responsibility at at, at a larger level at, at the level of um, the 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 impact of the human species on other species, uh, uh, of which zoonotic pathogens are uh, uh, symptoms in 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 a in a more general sequence. In, in and, and we're talking here about the the livestock revolution in the last fifty years. And, and the emergence of um, uh, zoonotic pathogens as a consequence of, of this livestock revolution. Well, I think we'll we'll come to back to this. I wanted to just kind of get your first you know pass at that at that question, and I appreciate your thoughtful answer. I, I want to talk now about your your book, which came out last year, Avian Reservoirs: Virus Hunters and Bird Watchers in Chinese Sentinel Posts. It, it's really, um, I mean, the, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, so what I've I'm really excited to read it, but you know, just looking at what you have done with the book and your approach, the sort of ethnographic approach, is really fascinating and important. So, can you just sort of lay out some of the, the what you were trying to accomplish with the book and your your methodology of doing it? So, the book is based on um, um, almost 15 years of of research with uh, virologists, uh, both in Europe and in China. Um, particularly focusing on, on Paris and Hong Kong as my, as my, my two main sites. But I, I've been, I've been tra traveling a, a lot with virologists all around Asia and all around Europe. So it, it's a comparison about the, the, on the treatment of uh, zoonotic pathogens in Europe and, and, and Asia. And uh, it, it starts from um, a reflection on the precautionary principle as a way to manage uh, uh, MADCO disease in the 1990s. And at the same time, the way um, Chinese authorities managed the first outbreaks of uh, uh, avian influenza in Hong Kong, H5N1, in 1997, particularly with massive killings, killings of, of birds. And what was justified by the precautionary principle in Europe was a way to reassure consumers uh, on, on, on the 
protection by the by the state um, was justified in China by the pr principle of preparedness. And I compare precaution and preparedness as, as two major strategies to mitigate risk on one side by um, uh, uh, by extrapolating risk or, or uh, accentuating risk and on the other side managing disasters uh, as uh, events with a low probability and catastrophic consequences and so i i, I try to see how um, chinese authorities but also chinese uh, ordinary citizens perceive this idea that when a bird gets sick the world is at risk of a pandemic so how did you come come into that? You came into that as a out of interest in zoonotic spillover or as an interest in preparedness and um, precautionary, you know, more on the disaster research and risk side. How did you find your way into this topic? Well, I had a, a more general interest on comparing Asia and Europe in terms of managing nature, thinking about uh, events, and that's that's philosophical training. Uh, but then I was also trained in the anthropology of um, uh, biopolitics as, as a way to governmentalize life. And I was interested to follow rules of biosecurity as they travel between the US uh, after um, the fear of, of a bioterrorist bio attack. Um, in the beginning of the year 2000 to, 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 to Asia with, with the SARS crisis in 2003. Uh, and, and I had a personal interest in understanding what happened at the beginning of the year, the year 2000 between uh, uh, the, the terrorist attacks in New York and, and, and the SARS crisis, which was perceived as a kind of Asian 9-11. So, so looking at, at biosecurity as, as a way to to globalize forms of um, anticipation and at the same way to anchor these forms of anticipation in relation to nature that are different. And that's how I do a kind of anthropology of globalization, but with a, a, an interest for local forms of uh, perception of nature. And that's why uh, working with virologists in Hong Kong after the SARS uh, outbreak, I was interested to see how they collaborate with, um, with bird watchers. I mean, that must have been uh, quite an uh, awakening when you saw that those kinds of combinations. I wonder if you can say a little bit about about that and what that field work was like. I mean, did you find yourself in the in the field with where bird watchers and virologists are actually collaborating and sharing notes? Uh, yes, I, I was uh, visiting Hong Kong uh, following virologists and uh, bird watchers, and uh, there, there's actually uh, a lot of places where biologists are interested to uh, follow migratory birds or resident birds. I also uh, spent a lot of time looking at uh, poultry farms and, um, uh, and, and poultry markets. So I, I, I was fascinated to see how the Hong Kong territory is often, which is often perceived as a place for uh, trade, was also a, a place with intense um, human-animal interactions. So in that context, let's talk about bats a little bit. I mean, it was, is that part of the uh, discussion? I mean, when we, when I've been reading about the lab leak theory, one thing you immediately discover is how many virologists um, 
particularly, I guess, in China, although in other parts of the world themselves, have to become sort of um, bird watchers, and then they have to become bat experts, and then they have to become cave experts, and then there's sort of like layers and layers of expertise and training, and they're often relying on local people to know where to go find these bats, um, to know where how to find them, how to capture them. So there's a lot of back and forth, and I had never thought of it that way. So that, in connection with your book, to me, is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I was uh, also fascinated by this transformation of uh, biologists into bird watchers and then and then bat catchers. Uh, because um, if you think that these uh, uh, flying animals uh, tell a lot about the circulation of viruses uh, in the wild and then into big cities, uh, then that 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 constrains biologists to to think like animals in some way. That is to anticipate their movements and understand how viruses react to the different physiologies of, of birds and, and bats. We, we have heard since um, Nipah and SARS uh, that um, uh, bats carry a lot of uh, viruses that are pathogenic in humans because their immune system is not the same. Uh, they, they have uh, developed an immune system that allows them to, to fly. And to and to coexist with different species in, in caves or, or trees, so so actually this, this connection between virology and, and ecology was was a good lesson for me uh, because virology is often described as a as a as a science to to make war with viruses, and and in the in the knowledge that they produce about birds and bats, um, virologists um, uh, have turned uh, these animals into into allies of humans in the war against viruses, and that's what I call the sentinels. The sentinels are these animal species that uh, are on the, on the frontier, on the battle line uh, with with viruses, and and they, they carry the signs of of viruses as a way to warn the humans against uh, pandemic uh, futures. Just a reminder to everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking today with Frederick Keck about his recently published book, Avian Reservoirs, Virus Hunters and Birdwatchers in Chinese Sentinel Post and other topics as well. So um, let me just, I guess the question I've been asking authors who brought books out at this time, what was it like to bring a book out in the middle of the pandemic? Um, so the, the 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 book in English uh, appeared in January, and as an as, as as an academic book, it had its own life. So I, I was invited to, um, to 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 give talks about it by by colleagues in in um, universities across the world. But but I, I was not really um, uh, uh, touched by um, by the media, except I think the New York Times um, called me once or twice. And by contrast, uh, I could see that uh, books in France uh, have a, a, a much more important presence in uh, in the media. Uh, the book came out in French in June, and um, uh, and, and I was invited a lot um, because the author was French, of course. Um, but but there was a kind of expectation that I would give the kind of a, a kind of moral lesson about the pandemic by publishing a book, and. Um, uh, 
I was presented in the French media as someone who knew about the pandemic before it happened, uh, which was not the case because I was, as an anthropologist, I'm, I'm trained to be skeptic about um, pandemic warnings. Um, but it's true that there were, there were very few um, uh, experts on um, pandemic viruses from China in France, by contrast with, uh, of course, the English-speaking world where we, we are a lot and I'm just, I'm just an observer. An observer. I saw some of these, some of this media, and I was fascinated by it and, and your response to it. I mean, disaster researchers in many fields, but particularly in this case, um, people who know the history of virology or maybe know the history of that laboratory in Wuhan or Wuhan more generally, they have been kind of treated as clairvoyant in this mm -hmm. time, which is not what necessarily what you want to be, but at the same time, you, it's a pleasure to be asked, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, my my effort as a, as a, an academic was to reinsert pandemic among other disasters for which there was technological knowledge produced in the last 50 years um, and and so I'm in some way I'm a part of this field of disaster studies uh, bringing pandemic of avian influenza as just one case and and and, and I, I, I I study how uh, experts um, um, make prophetic claims about the future uh, and also use technologies that actually change the world even before the disaster happens. So, for example, by killing uh, chickens to avoid the transmission of viruses to humans or by simulating um, an influenza pandemic in hospitals uh, or in markets, you change the way these institutions are uh, made. Um, so, so disaster preparedness has actually changed the world before the, the pandemic happened. Uh, and, and now I'm also considered by an expert on uh, how should we be more prepared. Uh, and uh, I think preparedness is a norm that has already changed the, the world and, and, and that will continue to change the world. And I cannot tell how we can be better or um, uh, less prepared. Let's come back to Wuhan then. And you published a, a piece it's a really good article, and everyone should check it out. And I'll put the link up. It's um, it's in the conversation. You published this mm -hmm. very early on, um, February second, uh, mm -hmm. two thousand twenty. The title is "Wuhan Coronavirus Crisis Management is a Test to Xi Jinping's Powers." And uh, one of the things I really like about this piece um, is that you develop a history of Wuhan, mm -hmm. and so we come to actually understand the place of Wuhan in Chinese contemporary history. Um, so instead of just starting the story with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, we get a broader, I think, social context to understand what it meant to lock down Wuhan. And, and I think it's, a, it's an important correction to the way a lot of um, the so-called lab leak uh, has been reported in United States media, um, which is a kind of a did they or didn't they story. You know, mm -hmm. which unfortunately is an inheritance of a way that President Donald Trump talked about it. Without this broader sense of even where Wuhan was, it's just, mm -hmm. you know, some place in China, and that's about as far as you have to go with it. So I really like the way you approach the article. And I guess I wanted to ask you why you think that background is important or what we can learn by knowing a, a bit more about the history of Wuhan, its place in China, as we think about COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So my first hypothesis when I heard in January that Wuhan was the site of a new SARS coronavirus uh, was that Wuhan uh, would be taken by the Chinese government as, as a sentinel post uh, for coronaviruses 
in the same way as Hong Kong had been taken uh, by the WHO as a sentinel post for influenza viruses uh, in a way that actually led Hong Kong experts to, to, to find the animal origins of the SARS coronavirus in 2003. And so in my own work, I had done the history of Hong Kong as a sentinel post uh, by looking at how um, virologists from Australia built a microbiology department in the 1970s and, and, and make, made connection with veterinarians uh, all across South China to uh, sample uh, pig and, and poultry. And I was interested to understand how um, virologists in Wuhan had come to the same situation uh, 40 years later, after the SARS crisis. And then I, I, I went back to the history of Wuhan, uh, and I found that uh, Wuhan was a colonial post in the mi middle of the 19th century, uh, where a, a lot of uh, Western companies uh, were trying to control the trade um, uh, between uh, the, the, the west and the east part of the Yangtze River. And then I also realized that the, the Chinese Revolution in 1911 was uh, caused by um, a, a revolt of the Chinese army against uh, the control of the railway by uh, Western, uh, Western traders. Uh, Western funders. Um, so I, I realized that the, the 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 collaboration between France, US, and China in the building of a virology lab in Wuhan to uh, sample uh, bat viruses was part of a very much of a very long history of um, uh, collaboration between China and and Western um, investors. Uh, and and so we needed to understand what what worked and what didn't work in this collaboration, but it, but in a long longer uh, term uh, period. But those entanglements to me are so uh, important, and and they do help us. They force us, I think, to uh, get past this kind of you know question of whether or not it's a again it's an American um, approach early in the pandemic that this was somehow a, a result of Chinese duplicity. But I wanted to draw you out on that a little bit further. I mean, how do you think that the Chinese government has performed in this regard, not only in terms of treating Wuhan as a, as a sentinel, the term you're mm. using, but also how they've managed communication, um, you know, either positive to, positively or negatively, and how that's impacted people's perception um, that something untoward happened in that laboratory. Right. So we can say that uh, Wuhan has failed as a, as a sentinel of um, bad coronaviruses because um, a, a bad coronavirus has emerged in the city where detection was supposed to be made. And that's the historical fact. But we can also consider that uh, Wuhan has remained a site of display for the Chinese government of what they could do uh, when they were confronted with uh, a, a pandemic virus. Um, and we must remember that Wuhan was also a site of uh, disaster management in the 1920s when there were massive floods. Um, and, and, and so the, the idea of, of um, reacting to um, uh, disasters with a strong collective effort is part of the history of, of Wuhan. So um, we can understand the, the lockdown of, of Wuhan and the whole uh, Hubei province precisely as, as, a, as a way for um, the, the, the Chinese government to, to show to the rest of the world that they were, they were able to manage uh, this kind of, of pandemic virus um, because they had the, the tools to control the, 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 their, their society, to, to tell people to stay at home with all these drones 
um, uh, flying in the streets of or in the desert streets of Wuhan, telling people not to come out. And and when we saw these images uh, of lockdown in Wuhan, we thought it would never happen in the rest of the world. And and for me, the most surprising thing of this pandemic is that we have been able to imitate in the rest of the world. I mean, with a lot of differences and resistance, what has been done in in Wuhan, which was um, by in 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 the account. Uh, of a public health history was totally um, new and had never been seen before. Mm. The, this rapid response, let's go inside the looking glass here for a second. So the conspiracy theories around, um, you know, the, the Chinese origin of the virus and particularly the virology lab origin, and it's one variant of the lab leak theory, but, you know, the rapid response in Wuhan, the lockdown of the country, what has been pointed to as evidence that, of course, it was a weaponized, it was a gain of function or even a weaponized uh, virus because China was ready and then it mm -hmm. was unleashed on the rest of the world. And, and that, and of course, many, many other sort of variants of that have been used. And, and, and often in conspiracy thinking, in my observation, is it's the absence of evidence is the proof of the conspiracy. That if you mm -hmm. had more evidence, then the conspiracy wouldn't hold. It's the fact that mm -hmm. Powerful interests in this instance, the Chinese government are holding back, so they've protected their own people and left the rest of the world to suffer. I mean, as an anthropologist, how do you even begin to approach that discourse? I know you're documenting it, but how do you analyze something like that? Mm -hmm. So, the, the the figures of the casualties of um, COVID nineteen in China, even if they can be contested, uh, show that. China has benefited uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic by contrast with um, other countries of the world um, because it has imposed measures of control of society and measures of uh, border uh, closure that, that the Chinese government wanted to implement for decades and, and, and that they, they succeeded to implement with this crisis. Um, and, and so it's a way to show to the rest of the world that they are able, that they were ready to, to um, that they were prepared for this pandemic. Uh, it doesn't prove the conspiracy theory uh, because, um, uh, I mean, if they wanted to control society, they had other ways than being blamed by the rest of the world for being at the origin of the virus. And that's, that also has a, a high political uh, cost. As an anthropologist, I'm concerned by um, uh, the, the fields that it opens and forecloses um, so I, I, I work particularly on, on uh, poultry markets in Hong Kong as a place of um, uh, intense concentration of experts um, in measuring risk of transmission. And uh, I, I got some funding to do the same kind of work in China for uh, wet markets, documenting the recent history of wet markets and their transformation by the management of COVID-19. But uh, uh, of course, it was very difficult to do this kind of research with the closure of the country. So I was able to um, have a, a Chinese uh, student uh, cross the border and, and do the study and, and show that um, uh, live animals and, and wild animals are much more difficult to, to sell in China. And we also did the same kind of research in South Korea, actually, and in, um, and in Cambodia. So uh, as, as an anthropologist, I'm interested to see how um, markets have changed and, and conditions of access to fieldwork have changed because of the pandemic. But I cannot tell the story of how 
the virus has emerged because that's a, a geopolitical story that um, will be told in the, in the in the next decades by by historians. Does that mean? Do you think that the um, the, the Chinese government has said that the wet markets now are no longer they're all closed and and that even the the market in in Wuhan that some have pointed to as maybe the origin point although there's still speculation about that too that that one was closed very early in the pandemic and so this opportunity for um, continued investigation and I guess going forward continued surveillance as you've talked about that's mm -hmm. now foreclosed or do you think that it's a matter of time and then these markets reopen and they resume this this sort of form of surveillance well, there is evidence that um, the Wuhan market, um, uh, the Huanan seafood market, uh, is, is not the source of the pandemic uh, because the, the animal species that were sold there was not the kind of species that could carry the coronavirus. Uh, there's a, a team that was doing a study of, of tick transmission in, in this market and who, who showed a, a wide range of, of wild species, but not, not the ones that carry the coronavirus. Uh, but uh, this kind of surveillance of uh, uh, animal markets that has been done um, in China for the last uh, uh, 20 years will be more difficult to, to implement and there will be probably a lot of smuggling uh, of um, uh, uh, selling live or wild animals. Um, uh, uh, what what, what I, I, I try to show is, is that um, um, the, the, the bios, what, what, what my students has uh, found is that the, the rules are changing every day. So um, the biosecurity rules are very strict, but um, they introduce a lot of uncertainty for poultry farmers, for example. They don't know if they can sell their poultry to a market, uh, if it will be open or not. Um, so so it, will, it will create a lot of uh, economic uh, instability in the country. And, and just to come back to, uh, you know, back to the sort of lab leak discussion, I mean, in a broader sense, how important is it to you to discover a sort of patient zero or to actually pinpoint this sort of moment of zoonosis. Is, is this something that you really worry about or is it something that ultimately, I mean, someone's going to, they're going to continue to try to find that, but how invested are you in the answer to that kind of narrow question? That's not the kind of question I'm trying to answer. Uh, mm -hmm. Anthropologists and historians have been quite critical of the hypothesis of the patient zero that has been um, built for uh, the AIDS pandemic and um, right can now be criticized because, well, this steward, Guy Tanduga, was, was not the actual patient zero and it was a failure of administration to call him patient zero. Um, so so it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's very easy for the media to tell a story from the patient zero uh, as a kind of, of um, origin of a pandemic. But for historians and anthropologists, it's much more important to understand the social and ecological conditions of emergence of new pathogens and see how they can be changed by the rules that will be uh, taken after uh, the pandemic. I'm hearing your answer to that, it kind of tells me also that people, it's, you, you said you've been asked about the lessons of preparedness building mm -hmm. on this case. I really appreciate the way you just very clearly answered that That. <laughs> that question. And that must be the kind of advice I, I assume you're giving to public officials who've asked you about this. In other words, how do we build on what happened in Wuhan as a way to think about pandemic preparedness in France? Mm -hmm. Yes. So when um, the, the, the media talk about 
being more prepared, uh, it often means for them um, um, closing our relation to nature uh, and, and, and building uh, safe cities, uh, safe airports. And my uh, investigations with virologists in, in Hong Kong showed me that preparedness on, on, on the contrary means being more attentive to nature and um, taking a view from nature on the conditions in which new pathogens emerge. So w w when preparedness leads to controlling like markets, which are the place of connection between cities and, and nature, it can also lead to um, an, an undesired effects such as smuggling, um, which reintroduce pathogens by the margins. So my, my view is, more, is not to, to say we should be more prepared, but rather we should understand the effects of preparedness on our relation to nature and, and maybe also um, understand preparedness as a new relation to nature where we, we anticipate the, the, the next disasters coming from our impact on nature. I, I'm, uh, thank you for that answer. And I, I also, I, this becomes a question around translation, I think, you know, translating from the kind of research you do to the kind of language that policymakers want to hear, because even mm. you're describing, you know, the media needs to tell a story relatively quickly. It needs to have good guys and bad guys. It needs to have discrete things that politicians can do and can be held accountable for. But, you know, in COVID calls discussions I've had with many people on this topic, they talk about the concept of the Anthropocene or more generally that we live in a, in a, in many ways, a human constructed globe now in which humans and non-humans are constantly interacting and, and more and more all the time. And so when you present that to a policymaker and say, this is the reality of our times, it maybe is hard for them to know how to act on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so um, I'm involved in uh, discussions about the One Health policy, which is precisely bringing together human health and, and animal health. And uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a way to um, force decision makers to think in a, in a broader term uh, by considering all the information we already have on the, the pathogens that circulate between animals and humans. But of course, it doesn't tell them where where to act because it depends on 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 the on the political situation, and uh, that's where uh, I think, as as an anthropologist, we can also say, well, there there are parts of the world where interesting things are going on, and we, we should hear uh, the, the 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 warning signals coming from this part of the world. So we we're much more localized than the kind of global networks of of one health. And, and, and so our, the, the challenge for, for an anthropologist is, is precisely to, to localize One Health policies and, and look at, at um, social ecologies of, of pathogens. It's fascinating to me, just coming back to our earlier discussion, that this kind of a concept of a One Health policy is, is one that probably makes a lot of intuitive sense to your bird watchers. Yes, exactly. That is, um, bird watchers do One Health before um, right. what else existed, um, they were concerned by the extinction of bird species uh, as a sign that um, uh, 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 a marine landscape was in a, in a bad health. Um, and, and they were also doing some kind of surveillance, uh, mixing military and environmental concerns. So it's precisely the kind of thing I'm doing is to show that preparedness also must involve 
local actors uh, such as um, uh, environmental associations, but also poultry farmers or um, uh, uh, market retailers. It seems that that's exactly the kind of research we're going to need. But uh, do you think we're going to get past these studies? The Biden administration has done a study, for example, and came with an ambivalent conclusion again about the lab leak and gain of function research. And, and I think it it was quite narrowly drawn. I mean, they want to be able to give an answer um, that then can, I think some people in the United States are deeply invested in that answer, meaning um, militarism, uh, stronger posture against China, and others, I think, are invested in the idea that um, maybe a closer to, to your argument um, that we just need to invest a lot more money in understanding you know, ecosystems, um, and in this case, sort of sentinels and, and surveillance. I don't know how worried you are that uh, those kinds of studies are will always be binary. And are those happening in France as well, the sort of government-funded study to get to the bottom of this? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm worried that this kind of environmental studies will be difficult to do precisely because of military concerns, uh, because biosecurity is a way to militarize environmental questions. So it's a way to get funding, but also it's, it points to very sensitive uh, fieldwork, such as um, markets in Wuhan or caves in the south of China. And, and so I'm trying to displace a little bit my uh, areas of focus. So I'm, I'm now turning to, to Europe, where there's a, a question of how to implement um, a, a biosecurity policy, policy at the level of the continent uh, by managing other uh, zoonoses such as um, uh, swine influenza or uh, African swine fever. Uh, so, so controlling the circulation of, of, of animals at the level of the European continent is also uh, one of my areas of, of concern. Um, but, but, but I think that we, we should um, bring some environmentalists in discussion with uh, policymakers precisely to show what, 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 margin, what margins of intervention we have given the, the, the sensitivity, the political sensitivity of these topics. So just to take a few minutes here before we conclude, I wonder if you tell me a little bit about next projects. I mean, you've got this, this book done, which was before COVID, before there was COVID, in a sense, um, and you've kept very busy with your research. You're just telling us a little bit about other field sites you may want to turn to now. What's that going to look like? Are, are you going to write a COVID book? Um, I don't think I'm going to write a COVID book because uh, there's, there's enough COVID book uh, for the moment and my, my testimony is not more interesting than, than that of others. Uh, but but I, I'm, I'm organizing a workshop on um, animal markets and the uh, uh, traffic of wild animals at the global level. So comparing the situation of Asia with Africa and South America. So that would, could lead to a special issue of a journal. And I'm, I'm, also, tr I'm also very interested by... Um, uh, control of zoonosis in Europe as a new field of research closer to, to home um, and, and, and bringing some advice to uh, European uh, um, decision makers on how we can do it differently from what has been done in Asia or in the US. Hmm. Well, that I mean, I think we'll be looking for that kind of research, certainly. And then students are, are absolutely, I I think at this point, drawn into that kind of work. I mean, you're, what's your interaction with graduate students right now? What kind of questions are they asking um, now that they can maybe get back into the field? Um, so uh, 
students are realizing that uh, biosecurity is is a good way to enter different kinds of fieldworks now, uh, uh, either laboratories or natural reserves or farms, um, because precisely it, it shows them interesting sites of concern, of, of perception of warning signals. Um, and, and so we, my, my students uh, study these this different kinds of, of places where biosecurity is implemented, including uh, Arctic uh, landscapes uh, where populations of birds are in monitored uh, to perceive signs of um, climate change. I, I wanted to ask you earlier, and just to to get a sense of it from you, you talked a little bit about you know, talked about bats and other kind of species. What, what about pangolins? There aren't they the most widely trafficked animal uh, in in East Asia? So the hypothesis of the pangolin has been brought at the beginning of the pandemic, but because uh, Chinese environmental associations had been uh, very mobilized against the um, uh, trade of pangolins from Africa to, to Asia, uh, Asian pangolins had been prohibited to, for trade uh, in uh, already 10 years ago. Uh, so it was it was an easy way for the government to um, give credit to environmental associations, but it turned out that pangolins were probably not the, the intermediary species if if the zoonotic hypothesis was was um, uh, retained. Uh, so I think um, uh, um, the breeding of um, uh, raccoon dogs or or minks in China should be investigated also. As, as, as a recent transformation that has, has passed below the radars of environmental associations by contrast with pangolins. And do you think the kind of conspiracy thinking that we've seen in this time is now also as endemic as COVID is going to be? Or is there some way to use the kind of clear communication that you've exhibited here to get past that? I mean, I, I'm always, I appreciate talking to you because you've sidestepped those narrow questions and brought us into much wider domains of thinking about what preparedness should be. But mm -hmm. I'm very worried right now that we're we're always drawn to the the shiny object, which is the conspiracy theory. They're getting so right. much attention, and we need ways mm -hmm. to talk about it. Yeah, conspiracy theory uh, are using very simple concepts of causality uh, to explain the uh, a disaster, uh, whereas we need complex complex ecological concepts of, of causality and my argument is that preparedness as a as, as a logic of anticipation that transforms the world in which we live precisely and entails this complex notion of causality involving humans and non-humans entanglements and and we need to think through this new logic of preparedness to anticipate future disaster just want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time uh, most weekdays. Today's been a special COVID calls with my guest, Frederick Keck, and uh, this was at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. Join me, please, for my next COVID calls, which will be at 6 p.m. October 18th, so the same day where I am in Asia, but 6 p.m. on uh, October 18th with Virginia Hanusek, photographer. Uh, she's an environmental photographer, photographer of Louisiana and the Anthropocene, and we'll be talking about photography and the environment in the age of COVID. And Frederick Keck, thank you so much for talking about your recent book, Avian Reservoirs, Virus Hunters and Bird Watchers in Chinese Sentinel Posts. I look forward to a time when we can travel more freely and you and I can get together and talk more about this. The work is fascinating. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.